We're continuing this morning in the book of Acts, this morning with verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1. It's a short passage, but it enables us to see the contours of the community that wait for the ascended Christ to pour out the Spirit. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that there are various portraits, uh, compelling portraits, rich portraits of the church in the book of Acts after Pentecost. We see what the community looks like. The advantage of this text is that it reminds us that in his earthly ministry, in his earthly teaching and preaching, in his death and resurrection, prior to his ascension, Jesus has already formed a community. Right? That the gospel he preached created the church, and here you get to see the Jewish root and the texture of the community that already exists before the Spirit comes. So, and that I believe will be informative and instructive to us. So I'm going to make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The personnel, the purpose, and the prayer. So, First, the personnel, meaning who, who, who is this community? What, who does it consist of? After the ascension of Jesus, which we looked at last week, the apostles returned to Jerusalem, to the upper room, and you'll notice in the text that they're listed. And they are named in order. Right? Peter is named first because he has a certain leadership role. James and John are also pillars of the church, so they're listed next. Right? These three, Peter, James, and John, are the only apostles from this list. Now, from this list, the only apostles from this list named in the rest of Acts. Of course, Paul is an apostle in a unique way, and he'll take up a huge portion of the book later. So... Acts of the Apostles really means like Acts of three or four Apostles. But it's, it's not the number that matters. right? It's the significance of the Acts for the history that Luke wants to narrate. right? That's why Peter and Paul take up so much of the book because they are the Apostles to the Jews and Gentiles respectively. And the great mystery hidden for ages and generations revealed in the Gospel is that Jew and Gentile are reconciled together in the body of Christ in one new man. So the apostles are listed, but you'll notice here the list of names adds up to 11, not 12. Right? That's because Judas Iscariot is missing. But he's not the same as the Judas, the son of James, who is listed. There's a Judas in the list. But that's not Judas Iscariot. There's a vacancy in the apostolic college. And this vacancy will drive what happens in the narrative later in the chapter. For now, just notice this. The apostles are crucial. Luke wants you to know who they are. He wants you to know certain things about the order among them. He wants you to know one is missing. They head the list of the renewed community of God waiting for the Spirit because they are unique. They are the unrepeatable foundation of the church. You are built on the foundation of the apostles. You are fed by the apostolic word. You are nourished on apostolic doctrine. 
So, notice again in the text, all these means the apostles, and we're told they were together with the women in prayer. Again, even before Pentecost, the unity and the togetherness here include both genders. They didn't have segregated prayer groups. You know, men's and women's study Bibles, pink Bibles, black Bibles. Part of the unity is that the 11 apostles and the women were together. Jesus has called out an ecclesia, a community. He calls us out of the world into an actual assembly, physically together in one place. One meeting together in soul and purpose, together, as we will see, in prayer. This community, beloved, is the fruit of Jesus' three years of gospel ministry on the earth. The apostles, together with the women. Christianity breaks down, and it challenges much of the Greco-Roman distinctions between men and women. In Christ Jesus, Paul says, there is no male and female. We're all one in Christ. This is what it means to be baptized into Christ, Paul says, to be clothed with Christ, this kind of unity. Something from the future, something eschatological, has broken into the patriarchal and hierarchical conceptions of the ancient world. And whatever you might want to say about this, and there's a lot to say, and it's complicated. But here, at the very least, at the very least, it means that women, even before Pentecost, are received fully into the community, and they exercise the same prerogatives in prayer, the same access to God as men. right? Like Mary sitting unmediated at the feet of Jesus, so now is the whole community sitting, waiting. At the very least, it means that they are all, male and female, priests, if you will, with full heavenly sanctuary access. Right, where only the male high priest could go, now they all go, men and women. And so the togetherness here is in the priestly work of prayer. And so a close reader of Acts, a careful reader, is going to already anticipate what happens in the next chapter when the Spirit falls at Pentecost. You might remember that Peter stands up at Pentecost, right, and he says, Joel predicted this would happen. That in the last days, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Sons and daughters, male and female, they will all prophesy. Now this does not mean that the community has no leadership or authority structure. But it does mean, at the very least, that a profound and an unprecedented unity and dignity in the spirit is conferred upon women. And the women here are unnamed. 
But we are told in Luke's gospel, which we just read, that when Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of God, now picture this, right? Jesus is on, if you might call it, a mission trip, a ministry trip. He goes around preaching, and we're told the 12 were with him. Well, you'd expect that. But we're also told, and also some women, traveling with Jesus and the 12. Right? Mary Magdalene, who had been healed of evil spirits, is named. And then you get this remarkable woman named Joanna, who's the wife of Chaza, Herod's household manager. So you have Herod, and you have Herod's right-hand man. His wife's a Christian. She's a follower of Jesus Christ, following them around. And so among these women, you already know, when they mention two of them, Mary and, and Joanna, that you've got probably a wide swath of the social spectrum. And Luke says, Susanna, and then get this. So he names three. One who's involved in the Roman authority structure, but he names three women, and then he says, and there are many others. Many other women with the twelve are following Jesus around on his mission? Yes. And they provided for them out of their means. They're actually the patrons who are funding Jesus' ministry. So some of these women are very wealthy. So a great company of women attached themselves to Jesus. Right? And traveled with him as he preached and supported and funded his ministry from the earliest days. Right? In Luke's account, when Luke tells us of the resurrection, it's Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who go and tell these things to the apostles. They are the witnesses of the resurrection. All of this is revolutionary stuff. We might just read right over it. And women for good reason flocked to Jesus and they flocked to the early church. And it's likely, right, it's likely, especially since these women are mentioned in Luke's gospel, and this is the second part of Luke's work, that at least some of these same women are among the women being mentioned here with the 11. The 11 and these women, again, they are the fruit of Jesus' gospel ministry on earth. But one woman is set apart. Distinguished from all the rest in the text. They were together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's not lumped in with the rest. She's singled out. This is, you might think, now remember, she appears quite a bit around the infancy narratives in the Gospels, obviously. And she disappears from the New Testament. After this mention of her, sort of, because there's a woman clothed with the sun in Revelation chapter 12, who's crying out in agony to give birth to the Messiah. And that woman is Israel laboring to bring forth the Messiah, but Mary is surely included in that sign. She is the most prominent and the most luminous member. She's the one through whose womb the Messiah was born. So her presence in this prayer meeting, right, is a living reminder. Concrete, 
tangible, embodied reminder of the reality of the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine? You have not only Peter and James and John, but you have this woman in your prayer meeting. Herself, by the way, a prophetess and a theologian of the highest order, as any reading of her Magnificat would reveal. I mean, the questions you might ask. I'd like 10 minutes. I've got some questions. She treasured all these things in her heart. And now, at this point, her heart has been pierced with the sword that Simeon said it would be pierced with. And her maternal sorrow has been turned into joy. And she takes her place as a disciple of her son and her savior. And she is honored here by Luke. Listed by herself apart from the other women. Blessed are you among women. All generations will henceforth call her blessed. And Luke begins that here. Now she's honored. But let's be clear. She's not turned into a demigod. Or a mediatrix. Or a paragon of sinless perfection. She takes her place humbly under the apostolic leadership. In that sense, she embodies the humility of the gospel. She is still saying to the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. And finally, this crew, which Peter, when Peter addresses it a few verses later, numbers about 120 people. In In this crew is also the brothers of Jesus. We're told Jesus' brothers, notice that plural, there's more than one. They did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. Well, they're believers now. And the presence of Jesus' brothers here is a sign of the grace of the gospel to overcome resistance. Resistance in your family. Family dysfunction. Among these brothers, for instance, would be the eminent James, who's called the Lord's brother by Paul and who became the leader of the Jerusalem church and who wrote the book of James. So this is an illustrious company, including many, many future martyrs, swelling, as I said, apparently at times to 120 people, including the 11 and many women. That's the personnel. That's the church before Pentecost. It's, why is it important? Because the church has a Jewish root. The second point then is the purpose. The purpose. I'm going to break this into two pieces, united and devoted. So first, united. There's this beautiful description in the text. It's in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is a a precious picture of the earliest Christians, the earliest Jewish believers, praying together and waiting 
as Jesus had commanded them for the arrival of the Spirit. They were, we're told, united. All of these with one accord. And so there's this, like, there's a unity of mind and a unity of purpose here. It's often hard to see this if you look out at the church today. Here you can go back to the origin. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one spirit and thus one body. And the concrete unity of the church, beloved, is a thing of inestimable value. Right? This is a picture of that visible, embryonic, pristine, unfractured, radiant unity. And I didn't mention this under the personnel because I wanted to mention it here under unity. I want you to notice one more thing about the list of the 11. In that list, there's one Simon the Zealot. We're told that he's a zealot. Probably because he became known as a zealot. He was distinguished by his party affiliation, if you will. And the term... Now, the term zealot does come from the word for zeal. But it doesn't mean here that Simon was zealous for the glory of God or the things of God. Simon the zealot, it means he adhered to the political theology of a group known as the zealots. A fracture, splinter group. And what did the zealots want? They wanted direct armed confrontation. Right? With the Roman authorities. They wanted the overthrow of the Roman regime in Judea. And they would have tended to view anyone else who didn't agree with these goals as a weak compromiser. So you can start to get the picture of the kind of people Simon hangs out with. So now look, it's a tad simplistic, but we could name the options on the ground for first century Jews as falling into roughly four categories. We get, we get these from Josephus. He does something like this, a first century Jewish historian. But, but you had the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees, all these groups would be pretty conservative. The Sadducees might be a tad less conservative because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were the priestly class. They were running the priests in the temple at the time of Christ. And they would be more open. If you were a Sadducee, you were open to sort of negotiating the boundaries with Rome. And maybe assimilating a little bit with Greco-Roman culture to get along. There was another group known as the Essenes. The Essenes were separatists. right? They got land and they moved away from society. They lived on the Dead Sea. Why? Because they thought that the official Israel... The Israel back in Jerusalem with the priesthood and the temple, they thought that they were hopelessly corrupt. Right? This is like your friend who thinks, well, the whole visible church is hopelessly corrupt, so I just meet with God in my living room. Right? They're sectarians. They're, and by the way, they're waiting for the apocalypse to deliver the righteous ones, namely them. So you had the Sadducees. You had the Essenes. You had the Pharisees. These were populist conservatives. They are what almost all of us would be, I think, if we were alive in the first century. We would probably all be in the Pharisee party, perhaps. They want to go back to the law. They want to adhere to the tradition. They want to restore the foundations. They want to teach the people the Torah so that we can have 
you know, stricter observance. They want to uphold Jewish distinctives in the face of Roman encroachments and hegemony. Jesus, by the way, identifies with none of these movements. He's an independent. The 11 apostles, we don't know. They might have been either Sadducees or Pharisees. But perhaps like the majority of people, they were unaffiliated. There was a thing that scholars call common Judaism. It was a kind of core that they shared. But what I want you to see is this. Simon is none of these. He's noted in the text. He's a zealot. So why am I belaboring this? Here's here's what I think is important. These party affiliations, these political differences, raw, by the way, and ferocious differences, felt daily in the face of Roman provocation. These differences with wide-ranging theological dimensions, these differences are transcended in the kingdom of God. All of them are here in one accord, including that guy from that party. It's quite a remarkable thing to note. Right? It's an interesting diagnostic question for us, I think. Who do we feel more kinship with? Right? A Christian who might have radically different politics than us? Or an unbeliever who has exactly the same politics as us? These party affiliations, which are much more fierce than ours, became relativized in this community because they are focused. There's a certain verticalness to this community. They're waiting for the gift of the Spirit. They're waiting for the power to descend from heaven. They're waiting for the kingdom of God to come. And when you're waiting under the ascended king of the universe for the kingdom of God to descend from heaven, it doesn't look that important whether you're a zealot or not. We now live in a time where politics is incredibly divisive. And I'm not for just wiping these differences away. The differences are real. They have to be negotiated. But they're divisive in part, in part, because politics is enormously big for us. And the kingdom of God is way too small. Right? In many cases, working for American cultural and political transformation is actually identified with or collapsed into the kingdom of God, and that is idolatry. J. Gresham Machen said this. He said, I think this is in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, but he said, Christianity may bring social change and has brought it. It may bring peace and prosperity. It may not. It may. But when it is pursued for those ends, it is no longer Christianity. Our confessions tell us that the kingdom of God is the visible church. Which, not to put too fine a point on it, means it's not America. The kingdom is brought by the spirit of the ascended Christ, and it's soon to fall on this gathering. And it's a kingdom of a global, heavenly order, different than the kingdoms of this fallen evil age. And so the gospel of that kingdom saves us from our idols. 
So here, being a zealot is irrelevant. Imagine a world where that kind of ferocity is irrelevant or laid aside or transcended. Or not being a zealot is irrelevant. All of these were together in one accord. Right? When the God of Israel becomes big, as Isaiah shows you in Isaiah 40, the nations look like less than nothing. Less than nothing. All the nations together on the scales, Isaiah says, are less than nothing if one catches a vision of the infinite transcendence of God. And until one catches that vision, it's my humble opinion, we ought to clasp our hands over our mouths and not make any political pronouncements. Political political pronouncements should be made by people who know that the nations are less than nothing. How about that? Right? Paul... Well, I'll, I'll bring up Paul in a minute. So what's going on in this community that Jesus has gathered around himself with this unity and diversity? Well, it turns out that Jesus and his gospel are bigger and more interesting than all our squabbles. And this group, this group knows that. Why do they know it? Because they've encountered the risen Jesus. And now they had seen him ascend. And they're waiting for the Spirit. Beloved, that has a way of reorienting one's priorities. So Paul would later pray for the Roman church, the church that he's in, right, the city he's in at the end of this book. Here's how he prays for the Roman church at the heart of the empire. This is what he wants Christians to be at the heart of this bestial empire. He prays that God would grant them to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together they might with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture, right? Beautiful picture. Disunity, right, of any sort in the family, in the church, in the, in the, in the body politic, disunity hinders effective praying. It hinders effective praying. But here... Everyone's of one accord. They're all united in prayer because they're waiting, looking for the ascended Christ to descend, to send the gift of the Spirit. You know, I've mentioned a bunch of times here the Valley of Vision, the collection of Puritan prayers. There's one called In Prayer. Uh, It's a prayer about praying. Um, And I'm just going to read a couple lines from it, but this will give you a sense of what has happened in this community as they are devoted to prayer. The prayer goes like this. Lord, in prayer I launch far out into the eternal world. And on that broad ocean my soul triumphs over all evils on the shores of mortality. Time, with its gay amusements and cruel disappointments, never appears so inconsiderate as then. Prayer launches you into eternity. And time and all of its gay amusements, all of its cruel disappointments, fades. Often the way we pray, sometimes I think the opposite's the effect. The prayer goes on to say, Blessed be the strong gales of the Spirit that speed me on my way to the new Jerusalem. In prayer, all things here below vanish. And nothing seems important but holiness and the salvation of others. 
In prayer I am lifted above the frowns and the flatteries of life, and I taste heavenly joys entering into the eternal world so that I can give myself to you with all my heart to be yours forever. This is the ethos of the community that waits for the Spirit. Right. Notice, secondly, they were, devote, they were united, but they were devoted. It says they were devoted to prayer. All these with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Public communal prayer. It's possible they were having some sort of ordered prayer service because there's an article before the word prayer. So it's literally they were devoting themselves to the prayer. That is possibly the prayer service. In any event, the word devoting here means to attend with perseverance and constancy. Right? Because prayer is difficult. Very difficult, right? We're distracted. We're jittery. It's hard. And we need the community to kindle our devotion. Right? It's a lot easier to sing here when you guys are here. Sometimes I come here on a Friday or Saturday and I sing by myself. It's not a pretty thing. It's a lot better when you guys are in here. We, you need the devotion and the fire of, a, of 150 candles. And, and prayer is hard. That's why public communal prayer is so important. Paul tells us in Romans 12, be constant in prayer. So this community was united and they were persistent and busy at prayer. Kind of a regular rhythmic thing. Right? Anticipating what Paul will later say to the Colossians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. It's always hard, right? We make resolutions. We have all kinds of strategies to improve our prayer life, right? If you're like me, you've tried dozens of different things and aids. and, and um, So it's important to remember here that what is driving and fueling prayer is the vision of the ascended God and his glory in Jesus Christ, Right? The Puritan prayer that I read is, I think, one of the key things to help sustain us in prayer. In prayer, I launch out into the eternal world. In prayer, I'm lifted up, right? Now, you can impact the world from there, to be sure. But we need to start to see prayer this way. So this is a devoted community, right? Later, after Pentecost, what are we told? We're told they devoted themselves, to four things, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The apostles will soon organize the whole community so that they could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Part of, part of what makes this work is you have to cultivate an uncluttered agenda. There's very few things in life we need to be devoted to. So... I think when you look at this community, you could sum it up in one word. Or two, I mean, unity and devotion, but devotion to the highest things. Devotion is a good single-word description of the community that waits for Jesus. Right? Public worship at the temple, corporate prayer in the upper room. They're inflamed with the divine love even before the tongues of fire descend. Finally, then, the purpose of this. The purpose, the point of the prayer itself. What's the prayer aiming to accomplish in general? This is important too, beloved, because when we pray, we tend to just end up praying through lists of things, right, of ad hoc, disconnected requests. And of course, there's a place for that. It's important to do it 
because life comes at you in an ad hoc fashion. But it's also important to kind of keep an integrated overall strategy and focus in view. Jesus had ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, to wait for the promise of the Father, right? And he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, with fire from heaven. So we all know that. But I want to dig just a little deeper here in closing. During the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, we saw this last week, Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He preached the kingdom of God as the central theme in his ministry. If I, by the finger of God or by the spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he speaks of it after the resurrection over and over and over again. And he says, I'm going to send the spirit. So the gift of the kingdom and the gift of the spirit are inseparable. They belong together. Why are we praying? Because we want the kingdom of God to come in fullness in the earth. Right? That's why we're praying. That's why we pray for the sick. That's why we pray for neighbors to be converted. That's why we pray for the country. We want the kingdom to come. Right? By the Spirit, the exalted Christ is coming, sending the, the, the power of the kingdom, advancing his kingdom. Luke, the same author here, tells us two related things. These are both from Luke's gospel. He tells us that when we ask and seek and knock... Our good Heavenly Father will give us the Holy Spirit. And later he tells us that it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To wait and pray for the Spirit is to wait and pray for the kingdom of God. That's the purpose of this personnel united and devoted in this way. They are praying for the kingdom of God. This is the community, beloved, the taproot of the community into which we have been grafted. So let us live as members, worthy members of this company. This is the unity and devotion to which you are summoned. Let's heed the example. This is the work of the Spirit, the kingdom bringer, the promise of the Father, whom you have already drunk of, whom you have been united to Christ through, and of whom you also wait. You wait for him and pray for him. This is the one who comes when we cry out, thy kingdom come. Seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else will be added to you. Amen. Amen.